robots we are here today with another episode of remedial studies i'm hannah and i'm joined by my wonderful co-host rachel and today we are going to be talking about jupiter ascending not finding jupiter as i keep calling it (laughs) but (laughs) jupiter ascending even though People do spend a lot of time in this movie trying to find Jupiter. I would just like to point out. I mean, that's true. And it's kind of a double entendre because the final battle's on Jupiter. (laughs) Which was not in... (laughs) I love how unnecessary that is and also how so many things in this movie were unnecessary, but they're still there. (laughs) This whole movie is so extra. So... Um, We're going to do our best, dear listeners, to give you a plot summary. It's not going to do it justice, though, because the plot is sparse and ineffectual. So (laughs) That's not what what we're here for. That's not what we're here. That's not what we came for. Things don't have to be objectively good for you to enjoy them, and sometimes it's better if they're not. (laughs) So the main plot of Jupiter Ascending, there is a young woman named Jupiter Jones who is the typical sci-fi protagonist sci-fi fanfic protagonist let's just be real who hates her life and who doesn't under her family doesn't understand her all she wants in the whole world is to buy this telescope on ebay so she could feel connected to her dead father and it turns out she is the genetic reoccurrence of a matriarch of this intergalactic royalty family That is one of the most powerful corporate dynasties in the universe. And the whole movie is her kind of dealing with that and being helped along by genetic enhanced werewolf boy Kane, played by a pretty much at least least shirt sleeveless Channing Tatum the whole time. And it's all about consumerism and people co-opting capitalism because they say it's natural even though no system of economics is natural and spectacle over story for sure it is a beautiful movie the costuming is ridiculous there's so much cgi and it's actually pretty good cgi it's pretty good cgi this was a big budget movie and it did, and it flopped at the box. Oh, office. it did horribly at the box at the box office, from what I remember. Yeah, no one, no one went to see it. And you know, it's funny because something I forgot to mention in our in our production meeting is that there was a, another big sci fi movie that had the exact same problem, but like did not appeal to me as much, uh, which was Valerian. Yes, I agree with that. I had the same reaction. I I made my boyfriend watch Valerian with me, and it was terrible. <laughs> we oh no. We he we finished it, and he was like, "This is how you know that I love you because we finished that movie." Whereas if I had been watching it by myself, it never would have happened. But I have like a deep deep-seated love of these terrible if it's terrible space opera like i'm here for it sign me up i will buy it in bulk 
Uh, and I had really wanted to see it in theaters and we didn't get to go. So I, we watched it at home and I watched it all the way through. Visually stunning movie. Terrible plot. Honestly, the plot was probably better constructed than Jupiter Ascending, but it just, it wasn't campy enough. It didn't lean into it? It was almost campy enough, but not quite. Not quite. I think the, um, the romance aspect took itself a little bit too seriously, whereas in this movie, that doesn't happen. Like, so, the thing about Kane who becomes Jupiter's love interest throughout the film because he is trying to protect her from all of these people who are trying to find her because the the main conflict in the movie is that Jupiter is basically, her genome is exactly the same as this like crazy rich lady like Rachel said, and the corporate enterprise that they this family owns is actually like human farming and Earth is a human farm and then they quote unquote harvest all the humans to make an eternal youth serum. Yes, I forgot to mention that, but that is a very important point. And that ties into a lot of the consumerism parts of the movie because Jupiter, the way things are apparently owned in this universe, the universe by by the way, was way more interesting. <laughs> than Jupiter was. But in this universe, the way you own things is things are attached to your genetic makeup. They're attached to your genome. Um, So because she, her genetic makeup is identical to the woman who used to own the Earth, she now owns the Earth. Yes. Which is a really weird way to inherit things, but in this weird alien, not alien, because they're human, I guess. Humanish. We Rachel and I talked about that. I had a big problem with the gen. I have a biology degree, so I had a big problem, a big problem with a lot of the genetics in this movie. But regardless, this culture has developed over time where they kind of worship genes as like something holy and almost mystical. Like they walk through this like hallway full of candles it's very atmospheric to look at a marble statue of mila kunis and it was a lot but basically the movie is is jupiter finding out that one her her genes are identical to this woman who basically like was responsible for the deaths of billions of people so that she could be young forever and make lots and lots of money being young forever and making other people young forever so not only is she genetically identical to this woman and she has to come to terms with what that means for her own identity and her perception of herself, but now she's been thrown into this political turmoil among these three siblings who are the children of this woman who she is genetically identical to. And it turns out that at least... Two-thirds of the kids think she was murdered so that Belem, the oldest sibling, could inherit her property. And now that Jupiter has, quote-unquote, recurred, all of the property that uh, was Belem's through inheritance is now Jupiter's through some weird clause in this will. So, Cain, who is a wolf-human splice... Thank you, Wachowskis. Yes. 
He's a werewolf boy. He he shows up and is sent. He was sent to retrieve her and bring her to one of the siblings, but finds out she's a recurrence because her of the bee's mystical reaction to her at yes. his friend's house. It's a lot. <laughs> God, this is one movie where Sean Bean doesn't die. He, the bees. Oh, the bees. Let us consider the bees. So there's a line that is played completely straight, not at all for laughs, and I think they just saw that they had casted Sean Bean and were like, what can we make him say? Um, <laughs> there's a line that is says, I believe it is, well, you know, bees are genetically designed to sense royalty. And maybe in this weird alternate place where aliens are monitoring all of the medical equipment on the planet for genetic quote-unquote recurrences maybe they are i don't know maybe they are well also wasn't sean bean's character okay so we need to back up (laughs) we've got off the rails already so sean bean and channing tatum's characters are genetically designed they are they weren't born in the sense that jupiter was born like she had a mom and dad, and she was born on a boat, and her mom is really Russian and an illegal immigrant, apparently. And they they are not like that. They were made or designed, I think would probably be a better term. They then they were spliced from different animals. For Kane, that is a wolf. For Sean Bean's character, wasn't he half honeybee? I don't know if he was half honeybee. I thought the person who like grew him just liked bees, and that was why his house was full of them, but maybe I could have sworn that. that was a thing. Because he doesn't look like Kane. No, but he also doesn't look like he's half bee. <laughs> well, I don't know what that would look like. <laughs> Sean Bean is just a normal dude. Sean in a house. Bean? Oh, no. <laughs> he's just I had to do it just once. With his daughter, who, like, there's no mention of her mother. We don't, like, never mind. That's not important. But the house is just full of, like, honeycomb and bees. And it's it's bizarre. It is really, really strange. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful set. It's probably my favorite sequence, though, and, like, my favorite set. Like, I, I can take or leave the fancy sci-fi villas on other planets. I've seen those. Those are boring. But a house full of, like, a crumbling victorian house full of beehives that are just like on the wall not like in boxes there's just honeycomb on the wall and there's jars of honey everywhere and there's bees just bees on bees on bees i'll take bees it. on bees on bees yeah i i found myself very much enjoying that sequence as well a thing i liked about the world building and i think this is something that recurs in the body of work the Wachowski siblings have built for themselves since the 90s. The world building is good. It's it's weird. It's the Wachowski brand of weird, which is like played completely straight. Like, yes, this is how the world is. Didn't you know that? Like, we saw that in The Matrix with Morpheus's character where he's like, oh, let me just tell you how the real world works. And like, even though it's weird, like you kind of go along with it. And that's how this was. Like, there's a whole scene. Probably, I think we talked about this. It's the strongest scene as far as the dialogue goes. Where the first time Jupiter wakes up and Kane has to, like, explain to her what's going on. And he's like, so they told me in training. 
that this is how you would react. <laughs> like, how she, he's like, oh, well, that's what they always say. They always say that when they said, or like they said in the session <laughs> that humans, he doesn't call them humans, he calls them like terses, something like that. It's mm-hmm. based on, I think it's based on whatever they call Earth. Like, they don't call Earth, they call Earth Earth, but I think it's like a, it's a derivative of Terra is what they call humans who live on Earth. And he's like, yeah, Terses always say it, it must be a dream. And she's like, yes, because nothing else makes sense. And he's like, how is your planet being the only one with intelligent life less crazy? And that's probably the best dialogue in the whole movie, followed very closely by I love dogs. I love dogs. Iconic. <laughs> Iconic line. <laughs> I love that as he's walking away and, like, eavesdropping, they zoom in on his ear to indicate that he is werewolf-earing. Yes. Speaking of Kane, I don't know if this is relevant to anything at all, but I just wanted to mention it. The boots. Oh, gosh. We have to the talk gravity, about- The gravity roller skates. So, Kane is a beautiful character who is not only basically a werewolf, He's a dangerous, royalty-hating werewolf on the wrong side of the law uh, who now has to work as a mercenary but obviously has a tender spot for a heroine who, even though she becomes royalty, he still protects and defends with his life and never questions her. Because there's... She ends up... She's going to marry her son, and I thought this was refreshing. She, I mean, it's not her son. Let me let me roll back. He, yeah, it, it's it's not her son. <laughs> it's not her literal son, but I was still grossed out by it. Yeah, I'm glad that out of those three, though, she picked Douglas Booth's character because that would also have been my choice. <laughs> well, I mean, yes. True. <laughs> but I cut you off. Go on. No, no, that's okay. Uh, so basically, to explain this weird movie to you, we're sorry that we're spending so much time like circling around the plot, but it's it's. It's so difficult. It's so difficult to talk about. Because there's so much going on. But there's a side plot where one of the children of the original, not the original, but this woman that that Jupiter is a recurrence of. I forget her name. We'll just call her the mom. Yeah, we can call her the mom. So Jupiter's recurrence of the mom of these three children. So one of the children, she finally gets delivered to the youngest son. Not the, like, crazy Eddie Redmayne character. The other one. Uh, And he basically feeds her this big lie that he thinks that his mom got murdered because she was going to try and end the human farming eternal life industry. And so she got murdered because she she was being a revolutionary. And he wants to start her work over. And he thinks that... Um, Now that he's starting to do this, he's going to get murdered too. And this is all just a a crock. He's lying to her. And and of course Jupiter buys it because Jupiter is a very earnest, trusting character. Her cousin convinces her to sell her eggs. And like he's going to take like most of the money from her selling her eggs. It's very strange. But anyway, uh, Jupiter, he says, like, Jupiter, I want to marry you. 
um, so that you will inherit my planet so that I know that they're safe and that no one can, you know, hurt the people on them. And Jupiter, of course, agrees because she doesn't want anything to happen to her planets either. And she knows that the other siblings don't, they don't care what happens to the people on the planet. But the whole thing is that this is a lie and that the the youngest son wants to marry Jupiter. And then like immediately kill her. And then immediately kill her and then get her planets because she has like some of the most valuable planets. Basically, Cain hears about this and instead of freaking out and being like, Jupiter doesn't love me and she'll just marry the first rich guy and she's over it. He's like, you've tricked her. Like, you've obviously, you're gross and you're a liar and I'm going to save my girl. And he never questions for a second that Jupiter has anything but the best of intentions. Which, in in another movie, I don't know that that would be the case. I don't think it would be, but you know what? This isn't another movie. Yes. But anyway, uh, I always thought it was gross. If Jupiter is genetically identical to his biological mother, that is still gross. Yeah, that's some, like, class A fucked up shit. Yeah, that's still gross. They just gloss over that, so I I was bothered the whole time. And And he's like, it's not for romance or anything. Yeah, and he feeds her that whole crock of shit where he's like, he, like, like, he, he totally, like, takes advantage of the fact that she doesn't know anything about this weird-ass world that she's been dragged into. Like, the whole thing about how there's not even any, like, witnesses to their wedding. Like, it's all robots. And he's like, oh, yeah, this is just normal. It's just for appearances. And she's just like, okay. Because she doesn't know any better. But that leads me into something. That whole just for appearances line. Because... We're never going to get to the core of this plot. (laughs) Like, we're just never going to. You're going to need to watch the movie and, like, make your own conclusions. But a big thing in this movie is the spectacle is the story, almost. Like, it's a story about overabundance and consumerism and excess. And that's reflected in a lot of the visuals. Like, some of the fight scenes just feel like they're going to go on forever. Yes! That final fight scene with Kane and the dragon alien. Yeah, that took Jupiter, like half an hour. As it's as the evil villain's lair is crumbling for like an entire hour of the movie. Yeah, it was really like thirty minutes, but yes. You don't do that stuff on accident. Does that make sense? Like, I think from what I've seen of Lillian Lanowakowski's other work. They don't really do much by accident? No. I mean, I think what we kind of, the conclusion we came to with the plot being ridiculous and a lot of things not making sense or not being necessary or just being weird is that they had decided to do that and they knew it was weird. Like, they didn't just wander in there and were like, this is fine. And honestly, what a power move. That is a power move. I mean... The first time I ever watched The Matrix, which is the first movie that they really, like, made their name with, was, I was in college, I was in, I was taking a summer class in popular fiction, and the way our professor described The Matrix is basically the Blade Runner of the 90s, where, like, it really shifted what movies looked like. 
I think there were a lot of books that dealt with a lot of similar things that The Matrix deals with. Like, uh, oh, what's it? It's a William Gibson book. I think Neuromancer, I think is what it's called. That, that deal with the whole, like, oh, reality is a simulation and computers are evil and blah, blah, blah. And all that stuff. But that was the first time it had really been put on film and, like, the kind of green tint, gray tone, leather, <laughs> Keanu Reeves, like, all that stuff. Everything tried to look like that to recreate the first time any movie had ever really had that look. The way sci-fi movies in the 80s and Blade Runner 2049 tried to recapture the sort of lightning in a bottle that the original Blade Runner got. So I, I kind of see this movie, even like the visuals even, kind of in conversation with some of their other work. Cloud Atlas, which I haven't seen, but I've seen Things 4 seems like it's kind of like that as well, at least as far as the visual component. Because that is a thing they're, like, known for. It's these really, like, scrumptious, like, you can just chew on the scenery all day. CGI smorgasbords. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not necessarily CGI all the time. Like, they wrote the screenplay for V for Vendetta, which, from what I remember of the film, is a movie that's also very purposeful with its visuals. Yeah. Mostly because the comic way. is as well. Exactly. In a different way. I think Jupiter Ascending... Just because I'm more familiar with the body of work is more interesting if you look at it in conversation with everything else. But also, like, I read a description on Tumblr that was, like, fucking perfect. And it was like, this movie is every 14-year-old girl's first novel. <laughs> and that's not an insult. Like, that's awesome. Because I read it and I was like, yes, I know exactly what this movie is. And I know I'm going to like it. <laughs> yeah, it was. it was like that. We talked a lot about just the character of Kane in general being that. Mm -hmm. The handsome werewolf, dangerous boyfriend. And then at the end, he gets wings and becomes an angel werewolf who speed skates and is uh, gravity. Yeah, can I, can I have that? Wachowskis, <laughs> can you hit a girl up, please? I just looked back. I watched this movie trying to imagine what 14-year-old Rachel would have liked. And I would have gone bananas for this movie i mean i'm into it now and i'm 27 but that's true i do think that's interesting though if we think about that reaction because it was like horrifically panned by critics when it came out i think it was on the wiki page how it's gained a following it said niche but really it's just women <laughs> but we're women by definition we're niche apparently about how it's gained almost like a cult following of like female sci-fi sci fans who are like it's campy and ridiculous and doesn't take itself too seriously. Why is that a bad thing? Right. I think we have such a narrow definition of what makes a good movie that we can't handle when things as weird as Jupiter Ascending come out. I think that's a good point. Like, we're primed to expect, like, a, a good movie. What was the movie that Leonardo DiCaprio finally won an Oscar for? The Revenant. I haven't seen that movie. I really don't have any interest in seeing that movie. Like, I, I'm sure it's good. But, like, that I think we're expecting, like, these serious, meaningful, taught like very intentional and subtle and blah 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 
Yeah, I think I think I know where you're going. Like that makes sense to me because it's why we have a whole genre of films called Oscar bait. Yes. Which is why this year was so refreshing to me because Shape of Water won, which is a move which as we've talked about in the bonus episode, The Shape of Water from back in January, we talked about how it it really just kind of sat in its truth and it wasn't subtle and it's like this is the story and you deal with it the way you want to deal with it. And that is not at all typical of a lot of Oscar-winning films that belong to that category. Yeah, I mean, I don't watch a lot of movies, period. And I definitely don't watch a lot of critically acclaimed movies. I'm going to be 100% honest with you all. Because they're boring, and they're sad, and they're, they take forever, and all, it's all dark-colored. I just want to have a nice time. I think the thing that becomes a problem when we talk about critically acclaimed movies versus movies that are fun or movies that we just like or that we just want to see for whatever reason is making things because they're fun and having that be like the driving force behind why you're making the movie is not seen as worthwhile. Like I watched um, on my plane home from Spain. I watched Shape of Water and Black Panther, and I watched Dunkirk, the Christopher Nolan World War II movie, because I I wanted to see what the fuss was about. And I gotta tell you, I'm never gonna watch it again. Yeah. I finished it. I will give it that. And I didn't think the concept was bad. Like, we didn't need another World War II movie. But beyond that, I don't think the concept was bad. Like, like, like the intersecting of the narratives of, like, land and sea and air. I thought that was interesting, but it was just so, it just dragged on and on. And, and I felt bad because I, it was one of those movies that was trying so hard to be important, like capital I. (laughs) And I'm like, two movies about the same goddamn military movement in World War II were both nominated for an Oscar. Like, I didn't see Darkest Hour. I've heard that the only good part of it was Gary Oldman. Like, most movies Gary Oldman's in. (laughs) But, like, Dunkirk, and I think some of it might have been because it was trying to be realistic, which is admirable for a war movie. Like, to me, it didn't seem like it was the kind of military worship that can come out of movies like that, which I personally disagree with. I don't think the real military is like that at all. But it was just so... It was Oscar bait. And I knew that the whole like two and a half hours I sat there watching it. I don't mind that sometimes. But other times I'm just like, did anybody crack a fucking smile the whole time you were making this movie? There are two things I remember about Dunkirk. So I saw Dunkirk. I didn't pick going to Dunkirk. I saw it with my family and my dad picked it out. Oh no. The second thing was that I saw an article that said World War II veterans say Dunkirk is too loud. Actual Dunkirk wasn't even that loud. It was much quieter. Because <laughs> it's a very loud movie. It kind of is, I guess. I mean, I listen to it with headphones on, so I can't really say. Yeah, I saw it in theater proper, and it was loud. Like, it was way too loud. The second thing was I remember an article that was like, how am I supposed to tell all of these sharp cheekbone sad european boys apart from each other 
Yes. The only reason I could tell two of them apart is because I've seen them in other stuff. One of them, obviously, Harry Styles. Other one, Aniron Barnard, who's not French. He's Welsh. Why is he playing a Frenchman? I don't know. Oh, spoilers, by the way, for Dunkirk. Nobody who listens to this show is going to watch Dunkirk. Like, let's just be real. Okay, so you mentioned Harry Styles. Here's how much I could not tell these apart. I went into work after, because I saw I was on vacation. I came back from vacation and went to work, and I was talking about how I'd seen Dunkirk. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's a Sprouse twin in it. And they were like, no, Hannah, there's no Sprouse twin in it. And I'm like, really? Are you sure? Because I could have sworn there's a Sprouse twin in it. And they're like, no. And it turned out that it, Harry Styles is the third Sprouse twin. <laughs> you can't see me, but my head is in my hands. <laughs> I really, like, they all look the same to me. <laughs> Harry Styles could be the third <laughs> Sprouse twin. I'm going to have to look at them all in a lineup now because I, I, I believe that you're right. I'm just having trouble picturing it in my head well, right now. I don't know if it was just made worse by the fact that they're close enough that the fact that I have no visual memory meant that they got lumped together or what Probably. happened. We've gone so far off the rails. That's fine. I think what we're basically trying to get at is that movies can be exuberant and joyful and colorful and ridiculous and still have merit and value to the larger society. Just because the quote-unquote critics didn't like it doesn't mean that it's not good. Yeah, I I think my problem, and this extends to various kinds of criticism, uh, literary criticism is another one. Both, like, critics as in, like, book critics from the New York Times and also, like, academia at large. This seems to be a theme in our show. People don't really seem to understand, and by people I mean, like, white dude critics who don't seem to understand when things aren't made for them. And I think that that's a thing we all kind of fall into. I saw that most recently. Two examples. One of them was the new Wrinkle in Time movie. Mm-hmm. where people were just ripping on it and i'm like i remember you saw it and you liked it i did not see it but it, it was i just kept thinking about it and i'm like there is no no way this is as bad as as these guys were saying it is there's no way and the other one was a facebook comment i saw like the day before yesterday <laughs> which was a white middle class suburban mom talking about black panther oh shit Oh, Karen. And I knew it was going to be bad. This was, a, she, this woman is not my friend. It was a comment she made because a woman um, that I'm friends with on Facebook that I went to, I took a writing class with her. She was talking about how she saw Infinity War and hadn't seen Ragnarok or Black Panther. Oh. Rookie mistake. But anyway, all I had to do was see, well, you can form your own opinion, but... <laughs> and I just, like, skimmed the rest of the thing. Ryan Coogler doesn't care about your opinion <laughs> about his take on the modern black diaspora. Like, nobody cares. <laughs> like, it's not for you. And I just think we, as a critical community, are not going to be able to move forward and become more inclusive and more productive versus antagonistic. Until we all come to realize that there are just things in the world that are not made for our consumption, and that does not mean you can't enjoy them. 
Yeah, and I think we also need to get away from, and I really hope we're moving in this direction in general, that being mean makes you sound smarter. Can we please move beyond this? Because it usually is the exact opposite. Yeah, you just, you sound like you don't have a lot going on other than hating on other people's happiness, which is terrible. Yeah, it it's just weird. I hope we really do move beyond the kind of gatekeepingness. That's been a bit of a thing with, in the news kind of recently where Kelly Marie Tran was bullied and harassed so horribly by Star Wars quote unquote fans that she like has completely left all of her social media. Like she is gone from most of her web presence and people got yelled at on Twitter by John Boyega. Of all the things to be mad about in Last Jedi, you're going to be mad at the actress who doesn't even write her own lines because you're a gatekeeping bitch? Like, I don't get it. (laughs) Well, things that are quote-unquote nerdy, even though millions upon millions of people have seen Star Wars since its debut in the 70s, Star Wars is the most mainstream science fiction you, you can get between that and Star Trek. Things that are seen as nerdier than often, like, it's like people... And I'm guilty of this too, so I probably shouldn't cast the first stone. But when you make your personality out of things, like pieces of media that you like, it often causes, in like my experience, and I did this a lot as like a kid, as like a teenager, where you then become so weirdly protective of like this version of the thing that exists in your head that you'll like lash out at anybody who tries to, quote, take it from you. Which is not a thing you can ever do to another person. So that is all to say, nerds need to chill the fuck out. (laughs) Yeah, like we, you won. We're the main, we're the mainstream. We have gained acceptance. You can calm down now. Yeah. I feel like part of why Jupiter Ascending didn't receive good reviews is that maybe it's because it's campy. Just that not taking itself seriously. It's not all... It's not hard sci-fi, and I feel like there's this weird, again, gatekeeping around what is and isn't prestigious in sci-fi. Like, somehow, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, hard science fiction is more prestigious than, like, a space opera, which is frivolous and silly. Yeah. The older I get, because I used to fall into that trap, it's like, oh, I read Isaac Asimov, and I'm you know, so smart because I understand stuff about whatever. And it's like, no, it's... That's really not how it works. In the infinite universe and how weird <laughs> just life on this planet is, I think now that I'm older, I'm like, it could it could happen. There could be a werewolf angel that speed skates on anti-gravity boots. It could happen. We just don't know. Yeah, it, it absolutely could happen. It's okay. I've learned this in my time. It's okay to just enjoy things and to not need a big convoluted reason or a justification to lo- to do or like those things. I'm going to use an example from my childhood because I, I recently moved and I'm going through all of these books that I've had for years and years and years. But I found when I was going through boxes of books at my parents' house, I found all of my first fucking edition Twilight books. And I went on a 30-second emotional roller coaster (laughs) just looking at them. 
because I'm 25. So I got into it in like eighth grade, which I was 14, which is around the time I would have definitely written the novel this movie would have been based on. (laughs) And it's one of those things where I look back at myself and I'm like, you know, who gives a fuck what you like when you're 14? Like, nobody cares. Like, I was always so self-conscious. I kind of fell into the not like, oh, I'm not like other girls trap in my Twilight hating phase, mm-hmm. which is still a Twilight phase. Yes. Where I, I wanted to be special and not like other people. Like, to me, I've I've always done that. I've tried to move around that in my older years. I was kind of like that with, like, quote-unquote classic literature. Because I was one of the kids that, like, we read books that were classics, and I happened to like them. So in my head, because that's what was so pushed on us at that time, I thought, oh, well, these guys aren't smart enough to understand it, which is absolutely not true. I was just a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) But it's kind of the same concept when you want to hold on to something so bad you inevitably warp it for other people mm-hmm. and i'm really glad that i'm at an emotional maturity where this movie was not warped for me i watched it all in one sitting and i had some pizza and a little bit of wine and it was just a fun evening i did not feel it was 90 minutes wasted and sometimes is that not what we just want from a movie is to just fill our time with good feelings and werewolf angel boyfriends i think so i mean sometimes you just you need that you need something you need a romp you need a space romp you do and i think it's interesting if we think about that in context with one of the big themes in the movie which is time Mm-hmm. and how uh, there's a line i believe it is eddie redmayne's character <laughs> who <laughs> What was Eddie Redmayne doing in this movie? Eddie Redmayne was, I'm pretty sure, Theory of Everything came out that same year. It did. He probably, he was just coasting. He was like, uh, I've got my Oscar locked up. I'm just gonna do whatever the fuck I want. And thank God or we wouldn't have this iconic (laughs) performance. He has a line that is essentially boils down to Jupiter is asking him to justify farming human life so that people can live for thousands upon thousands of years like it comes out at one point that the woman jupiter is a recurrence of was like ninety-two thousand years old but he basically boils it all down to life in and of itself is an act of consumption and in that act of consumption the greatest commodity the greatest source of capital is time which again gave me a bit of an existential crisis because that is something that like It made sense to me in a weird way. Yeah. Especially because time must be bought in this universe. It's really only the purveyance of the rich and the crazy families like like the the Abrasac siblings who run this mega corporation that has the pull and sovereignty over whole planets really is like corporations as nation state gone mad. And I still don't really know what to do with that. Like most Wachowski projects, I'm always like, but what do I do with this? (laughs) Like, I think I get what you're saying, but you need to lead me to the next step. Eddie Redmayne's character sort of frames this, it's what is essentially capitalism. It's space capitalism, but it's capitalism. That it is this thing that is defined by evolution. 
and that it's the way of the world and it's better to go with it than to fight against it. Which Jupiter correctly asserts, at least on like her individual level, is a load of bullshit. I talked about this in the beginning. Economics, as we know it, is a human construct. It's just paper, guys. <laughs> it's just paper or numbers on a screen. We just give it value and we all agree that that's what it means and that we all need it. It's fake. It's made up. And it's kind of like how you talked about it's how this turns into a trolley problem. Oh, yeah. Where Jupiter at the end is willing to sacrifice herself and her family if it means like the rest of the Earth doesn't get farmed. Yes. It's still like this weird accelerated version of capitalism that exists on a scale that we cannot even fathom that is sort of the if there is a quote-unquote i know we we both dislike this concept i think about how every movie has to mean something and every movie has to have a moral or whatever like that's not a thing but this movie definitely is anti-indulgence and consumerism and things like that i think because they put it on such a level that, like, it's a little bit like satire, where it takes it to that weird furthest <laughs> conclusion. Yeah. To be like, this is how fucked up and ridiculous this is. Yeah. You see that a lot in the hashtag aesthetic uh, of the movie, like, with the costuming mm -hmm. and the CGI. And there's these scenes where they go through this complicated multi-level bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And... Like, it's just ridiculous. It's like, what if a bureaucracy had the chance to just marinate in its own juices for a bajillion years? What would we end up with? And it's like, this, this is what we would end up with. And what if, what if capitalism was allowed to just let you farm people? Like, this is where we're going, I think, in a weird way. Because mm -hmm. one of the lines that you had mentioned in our production meeting was the idea that some lives were just more important than others. And I think that's something that we're seeing reflected in some people's conception of what, you know, how some people should be treated in our own society and that some mm -hmm. people just aren't worth as much as others. And I think I don't know if maybe that's why Jupiter was an illegal immigrant. I mean, it increases her otherness and her isolation, but it also puts her in that category in a modern in our modern society of people that some people would consider to be not as deserving or worth protecting as others. Yeah, because like in the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie, she works with her mother like cleaning rich people's houses and there's a thing that i noticed recurs in the first probably third of the movie before she leaves planet where she constantly is admiring and picking up things and putting things on in the mirror that she can never have and she has to be in this world of opulence and know that she will never belong and how that's reflected in a, on an intergalactic scale <laughs> later on in the film. And, and it really is just kind of shows that she's one foot in, one foot out of both worlds. Yeah. 
I'm on like a trolley problem just thing lately. I don't know what how that happens to a person where it's like I'm in my trolley problem phase. You're in your trolley problem period. Yeah, so I just see trolley problems everywhere. The final thing with the film is that I was like, where's the second movie where she like goes and overthrows the entire thing? Because she saves her one planet. This weird capitalist corporation thing is still going on on like countless other planets. I'm like, Jupiter, Mm -hmm. girl, I need you to use your privilege to fix this. I know you want to fly over Chicago with your werewolf angel boyfriend who's Channing Tatum, but, like, I need you to get on this. Yeah, like, I respect you. You also go need to do this thing. I believe it is insinuated at several points in the film, the Abersaxes are not the only dynasty of this kind in the universe. Yeah. They're just the richest and the most powerful, but they're not the only ones. Yeah, I I wanted the sequel where she just, her and Channing Tatum and Sean Bean can come if he wants to, just roll up. Yeah, Wachowski. Calm that motherfucker down. Well, we will steal the money from the people raising money for a Last Jedi remake, and we will give it to you. And you, know you can what? do a second Jupiter Ascending instead, because I think that's yeah. more worthwhile. <laughs> I think that is more worthwhile. Like, guys, it's not that deep. <laughs> it's on audio record on the internet that I took issue with several items in The Last Jedi. It's not that deep. Yeah, but we also weren't like, remake it right now. This is a travesty. We we're like, yeah, Ryan no. Johnson, what, what's up, bro? Yeah, we were like, hey, Ryan, uh, counterpoint. <laughs> like, that was my, that was just me the whole movie. I'm like, okay, okay, we could go with that counter, though. Here are my counter offer. We don't do that. <laughs> that was our that whole was, point. That was the whole what point. What if? What if we didn't? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we either take the money from those people or we tweet Jeff at Amazon. <laughs> he's got the money. Yeah. He's on He's on track to be the world's first, tr- like, Amazon is going to be the first trillion dollar company. Uh, that is fucking terrifying. Yeah. They don't treat their employees very well. They don't. They barely pay the minimum wage. Uh, and they don't have safe working conditions from what I've seen. Yeah, that's rough. Well. But that's, I mean, that's a precedent that's been set in this country specifically. I'm going to get up on my soapbox. My apologies, listeners. Labor in this country, especially labor like the kind that Amazon does at its warehouses, is so devalued. Employers will jump at the chance to pay people less and to give them less benefits and all that other crap. I've seen that. At a couple jobs I've had, not going to name any names because it wasn't that big of a problem and it wasn't that deep. The idea of profit and capital over personhood, which is, again, reflected in this movie, is like a real problem yeah. that we are dealing with in our modern society. Yeah, it's money is more important than actual human people. Exactly, like the like the almighty dollar is really becoming a like an actual religion. Yeah, like I don't I don't want to pay for poor people to have health coverage because then I'll have less money and they don't deserve it. And I'm like, ex- like what? What? That's I don't my know how to explain to, to you that you should care about people. <laughs> and I think that's what made this movie so. It's just a nice couple of hours. Because it was a way to engage with that kind of discourse, 
but you have that that security blanket that is the space opera genre yes where you can look at it and you can actually be separate from it at the same time because to me i think that's why i don't watch a lot of movies that are about quote-unquote real life things like my dad will only watch movies like that i totally get it that's your thing he's not a fiction person but i'm like i cannot do that and i and it reminds me a lot of a couple things it reminds me of in fiction like the kids from stranger things how like them separating themselves one degree from the world by seeing everything in dungeons and dragons metaphors is a defense mechanism it's also like how everybody and their mom, and by that I mean people like probably around my age, tend to see the world and like conflict and stuff like that through different YA series like Harry Potter and Hunger Games and all that other stuff because it, it's easier to frame it through a fictional world than it is to just take it head on and be like, this is a real thing that I'm living in. The other thing I think I liked about this movie was there's the anti-capitalism message, which I think Rachel and I pull out of a lot of things, whether it's there or not, because we don't like capitalism. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But I also really got this sense that your genes, these sort of for all intents and purposes, random assortment of letters that make up your physical self aren't all that you are as a person. Mm -hmm. Because there's this expectation from the children of the mother that Jupiter, because she is genetically identical to their mother, will be just like their mother. They feel that they already know Jupiter because they've known their mother for so long. But... They end up underestimating Jupiter mm-hmm. because they think that they know her and and they don't because Jupiter is more than just a random assemblage of letters. She's got her own suite of experiences, you know, on the underbelly of capitalism. Yeah, there's a really good line that kind of got buried in the rest of the scene where she's talking to Belem, Eddie Redmayne's character, and he's like, yeah, you're nothing like my mother. My mother never scrubbed a toilet in her life. And Jupiter's like, well, maybe that was her problem. (laughs) And I was like, yes, fuck him up. (laughs) And then she shot him in the leg. Yeah, that was great. I approved of that. Because he's like, you won't shoot me. You're just like my mother. And then she's just, she doesn't even say anything. She's just like, "Mm, no, shooting you in the leg. And then later she beats him with a pipe. Yeah, it was pretty sweet. And then he falls into an inferno in classic supervillain style. They pull a Disney where she doesn't actually kill him. He just, they're fighting and because he's fighting her, he falls off of a of a thing. There was very Beauty and the Beast Gaston. Very Beauty and the Beast Gaston. Very Judge Frollo at the end of the animated Hunchback of Mo- no, yeah. Notre Dame, not the book. <laughs> It's very important that the hero not kill anybody Yes, in a Disney movie. That's the law. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I really like those scenes where he's like, you know, you're just like my... There's the, the dramatic scene at the end where he's like, you're just like my mother... You know, because she asked me to kill her and she said that she hated her life and she 
you know, asking to put her out of her misery. And then she just hits him with the pipe a couple of times, like some real good smacks. And is like, I'm not your damn mother. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. And then he falls into the fiery abyss and all is well. I mean, it's not because they almost get exploded by the planet, but there's some sci-fi shenanigans and everyone's okay. So do we have any final thoughts on this movie? I think my last thing I just wanted to say is this movie is such an exuberant and enthusiastic movie and it's sort of sci-fi the way I like it best which is just drunk on the possibilities of what the future could be. Like yes there are anti-gravity speed skates. Yes you can have your werewolf angel soldier boyfriend. Yes you can rule planets. There are so many wonderful things about technology in the future in this movie but there's also this really this really dark side to that which is also you could become immortal and completely morally bankrupt and farm planets a la you know it was very it's very thanos very thanos i agree with that it was very much you're you're sort of drunk on power and your perceived moral superiority. <laughs> yeah. I love how we're never going to actually do an episode on Infinity War. We're just going to, like, make comments about it for the next six months. Infinity War is beneath me. <laughs> I I mean, I mean, yeah. I'm so mad. I'm still furious. It doesn't deserve an episode. Well, no, because our thoughts on it are unanimous. And brief. Which is, in sum, put it back. Put it back right now. <laughs> put it back. Why are we not gathering a fund to, like, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, that shit from all of our collective brains? That is the Kickstarter I would support. Yeah, no one has their priorities straight on the internet. Nope. <laughs> Last Jedi was not that bad. No? Not bad enough for that. And we didn't like it. And <laughs> we're like, what are you guys freaking out about? <laughs> like, it's not... It's just endlessly just not that deep. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think this movie succeeds in a weird roundabout way because it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's like, plot? What plot? We don't need a plot. <laughs> we don't need a plot. We're just going to give you so much CGI that you don't even care. <laughs> We're going to blind you with spectacle, not science. And... That's okay. I think that was what I took away from the movie at the end of the day, was, you know what? Not everything has to be this critically acclaimed Oscar darling thing. In fact, it's good when it's not. Because a lot of the times those movies, like, I I try to respect and appreciate people who genuinely do like Citizen Kane. I do. Who are they? Where are they? I don't know. But it's <laughs> it's so frustrating for me. To see other people who are still just clinging so hard to pop culture, movie, nerdery, that kind of thing as a kind of performance. Regardless of what age or what thing it is that you're clinging to and claiming you're an expert on and being gatekeepy about, that is a performative act that you are doing. And it's ultimately an unnecessary one and it's not good for you. And all I want is for you to do things that are good for you. And what's good for you is enjoying things. And I enjoyed this movie. 
All right, robots, that's going to wrap up our episode on the Wachowskis movie Jupiter Ascending. Much like the plot of this film, it was probably a little twisty, turny, and convoluted, but as always, we got there in the end. If you would like to get in touch with us on our various and sundry social medias, we are at Remedial Studies on Twitter. We are Remedial Studies Podcast.tumblr.com. If you'd like to send us a good old fashioned email, which y'all did leave Matt Leggetti to do by himself because he is the real MVP, you can send that to Remedial Studies Podcast at gmail.com. A thing that we're going to try to do because uh, we. It's kind of the whole reason we started the show, like a lot of things, and we're constantly finding new things to like. We're going to start sort of leading you guys to a couple indie creators that you might like. Um, this week, we are shouting out the OG friend of the show, B. Highland, who is the showrunner and the writer for Violet Beach Podcast. That's at Violet Beach Pod on Twitter, and I think her personal Twitter is just at B. Highland. She just came out with a show that she's doing for the summer that I haven't listened to yet because I'm a bad friend. I'm sure because it's B and everything she touches turns to gold is very good. It's called Four Teenage Girls and it's an interview podcast where she talks with teenage girls about shit teenage girls have to deal with, which as a person who was a teenage girl, I will probably find highly relatable. But again, please listen to her shows. She has a hat that says, please listen to my podcast and she wears it to college. Like power move. (laughs) power fucking move and so b highland she's great at b highland on twitter as a final note for our next episode after this we are going to be watching a movie that the first time i saw it was in your tiny studio efficiency apartment yeah way back in the day moonstruck the classic Oh, Moonstruck is my favorite movie, guys. I'm sharing my favorite movie with you. Do not betray my trust. <laughs> we won't. Oh my god. I'm still I still think about that movie all the time. It's so good. It is really good. People don't know this, but Nick Cage was a great actor in the 80s. I don't know what happened. Nick Cage is an Academy Award winning actor, and I did not know that until like this year, people. It's crazy. <laughs> You know what? We live in a universe where Matthew McConaughey can be oh my gosh. an Academy Award winning actor. What happened? I don't Did know. Did Matthew McConaughey steal Nicholas Cage? Like what? Oh my god. He, no, he, that's a thing. He stole Nicholas Cage's energy. Uh, I think okay. that's a thing. All right. Case closed. But in any case, that's what we're going to be watching and talking about next time. It'll probably be just as ridiculous and crazy because... That's what Moonstruck's all about, and it's great. And you get to see Nicolas Cage and Cher just being a, ro- being a romantic comedy together, which is the best thing that's ever happened to cinema. <laughs> True. That's 100% <laughs> endorsed by me. So we're going to go do that. It's going to be a great time. Uh, one last final housekeeping thing. Um, we forget to ask for this a lot, and by we I mean me. If you um, listen to the show and you like it, if you could please rate us and review us on iTunes, that would be wonderful, or wherever you found us. Um, I know we're on we're on a few uh, podcatchers as well. I know we're on Stitcher. Still not on Spotify. They still won't return my emails. Um, this show is so fun to make, but it it's so it so makes us feel all good and warm and fuzzy when we get tweets from people and we interact with people and we. 
We just want to be friends, guys. We just want you to prove you're not all robots. Yeah, we will write you back, and we will be really excited about it. <laughs> yeah, we will be more excited than you. Yeah, probably. we're we're bigger fans of you than you are of us. Almost guaranteed. That's real. That's 100% real. So, on that note, friends we have not yet made. You will not see us. We will not see you. But you will hear us. Next time. Bye, robots. Bye.